Disasters and pandemics pose unique challenges to healthcare delivery. As they contend with the COVID-19 pandemic, health systems that have already invested in telemedicine may be able to adapt those innovations to support the current evaluation and treatment of patients. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Judd Hollander, Associate Dean for Strategic Health Initiatives at Sydney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Hollander has co-authored a perspective article about leveraging innovations in telemedicine in the response to COVID-19. Dr. Hollander, can you describe the current landscape for telemedicine in the United States? How widely has telemedicine been implemented across the country? So I think there's two answers to that question. There's the answer from a month or two ago, and there's the answer from today. So if we look at the pre-COVID era, telemedicine was widely available to people in the country, but not widely adopted, nor was it widely implemented, because there were a whole series of barriers that prevented patients from accessing their own physicians. However, patients were able to, if they were members of large employer groups or insured appropriately to do that, they were able to speak with physicians via telemedicine for a whole host of medical conditions. However, it was relatively rare throughout the United States to be able to speak with your own physician. And what I mean by that is there are large provider networks, and the provider networks will make physicians available to employers and to payers so that patients can access them, but they are most likely not the physicians that you know in your local community or the physicians who care for you at your local health system. So in essence, telemedicine was available, but not with your own doc. What has changed since COVID is that now health systems locally and regionally have scaled up or created from nothing telemedicine programs, and now you are much more likely to access telemedicine within your own health system. Has that happened before? Has telemedicine been scaled up for any previous public health emergencies, or is this really a first? This is largely a first. There's a lot of discussion when there's disasters like hurricanes and floods and true natural disasters that aren't pandemics about using telemedicine to get into the area. And I have tried, along with my co-author, Dr. Brendan Carr, to make the point over and over that if you don't have a baseline telemedicine program, you can't scale one up overnight to help out with a hurricane in New Orleans. You need to have the technology in advance. What's different about the COVID pandemic is that there's not infrastructure collapse. So outside of not having providers who know how to use telemedicine when these large-scale natural disasters occurred, you also had the challenges of infrastructure was destroyed and you might not have Wi-Fi and you might not be able to get communications into the area. With COVID, those infrastructure problems don't exist. So now what we're seeing as we rapidly ramp up is at least we can eliminate one challenge. But I like to say, if you didn't have a telemedicine program before a disaster, you really can't stand one up overnight. And that's why you're seeing the health systems that had programs in advance, much like ours at Jefferson and many others, step to the forefront and be able to scale up in the region. Looking at COVID-19, in what way is this disease well-suited to evaluation and treatment using telemedicine? And what particular challenges does this disease pose? So let me approach it. It's not just the disease that poses the challenges. It's the care of everybody who doesn't have the disease. So to begin with, at baseline, there are a large number of people who every day go to the doctor in the country. Those people right now are being encouraged to stay home. Those people are encouraged to socially distance themselves. 
those people are encouraged not to get the chronic care that we believe they normally need. So it's not just COVID patients that become important. It's potential COVID patients. And then it's the clearly not COVID patients. And there's multiple telemedicine solutions that could work around this. So I'll give you a couple examples of the things that we are doing and I know others are doing. First of all, there's direct-to-consumer telemedicine where you could download an app for your health system. Ours is called Jeff Connect. You go online and you can see in our system an emergency medicine doctor 24-7, 365, although now we've increased that to include primary care physicians due to the necessary volume increase with COVID. So if you have a problem in your home, you can now see a doctor around the clock. That's a great on-demand system to take care of people with new acute problems. And in the Philadelphia region, we have messaged loud and clear, and patients have responded to it, don't go to the emergency department, don't go to urgent care, don't go to your doctor unless you absolutely need to do telemedicine otherwise. And in fact, even as we have grown out testing, and we have okay testing capabilities in early April in the Philadelphia region, what we have done is we've linked those people who think they need testing with our Jeff Connect platform to call and be evaluated. They could be evaluated by a physician, referred for testing, and then we can close the loop by providing test results on the back end. So that's the way we've leveraged the on-demand platform. We had a scheduled visit platform that, in theory, everybody across the health system was able to use, and we had over 1,000 practitioners, docs, and nurse practitioners and physician assistants trained to use it, but we probably had about 400 that used it regularly, and we did only about 50 visits a day on most days, scheduled visits, outpatients into their own established provider. We scaled that up, like literally the first week of COVID in the area, it went from 50 visits a day to over 1,000 visits a day, and by the second week was closer to 3,000 visits a day. As a very concrete example, the Department of Medicine was doing a single digit percentage of visits via telemedicine each day. Within a one month period, they went from that single digit percentage to 90% of their visits being telemedicine. That's for the non-COVID patients. That's literally the right number. More than 90% are now telemedicine. So one, we talked about on demand for evaluation of the COVID patients. And two, we talked about maintaining care and chronic care for all the patients that don't have COVID and keeping them away. Then there's the group in the middle, the group that are going to the emergency department and then staying in the hospital. And we've implemented telemedicine programs for them. Before COVID, we had a neat little program called Virtual Rounds, where if you just wanted, when you were a hospitalized patient, to engage your family when the care team was rounding, we would patch your family members into the room by video at the time the healthcare team was there. And that way, maybe it's the day before you're going home, your family could ask the doctors all the questions they want without making phone calls all day trying to track down the doctors because they would just be engaged at the time of rounds. That program we've dramatically spun on its head and launched a dashboard that we will operationalize this week. We can take actually all the patients in the hospital with COVID or PUIs who can't have visitors and try and solve the loneliness and isolation problem so that they'll all have a tablet in the room and their family member can video chat with them the whole day in the room. That's the virtual rounds end of it. But at the same time, just like a patient has a room number and they may be in room 1015, the doctor will know which patient is in room 1015 and be able to access that patient via the tablet. 
and video consult with them as needed. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One is there are workforce challenges, as we've seen throughout the United States with COVID. And what we have done is we've tried to leverage the physicians who are quarantined at home, but feel well enough to help to take calls. So imagine at your hospital where you have a handful of infectious disease experts, but they end up getting exposed and many or most of them are home. Wouldn't it be great if the person who feels most well could still continue to do the consults in the hospital by going into room 1015 and then 1018 and seeing the patients via video? So it lets us use these quarantined physicians to work, but it also lets us preserve PPE because we reduce the number of visits to the room and lets us preserve workforce because we could make it so the workforce has less contact with COVID positive patients. On the other hand, if you need to go in the room and take care of the patient, you put on your PPE, you go in the room, you do what you need to do. But if you don't need to, the social rounds, shaking the hand, making the patients feel good, that should not happen with physical touch and exposure. That should happen with the technology that we've laid out. So that raises the question. In a related perspective article, Schulman and colleagues write that the economic incentives in medicine have largely been developed to support a face-to-face -face model of medical care. So do the payment models need to be changed so that digital services are adequately compensated? How's that working? I think their article is brilliant, and they did a really great job of highlighting some of the problems. The main thing is, and the way I look at this, now I'm putting my patient hat on. I'm a patient, and I pay X number of dollars to a commercial payer a year for me to get care. I don't pay to socialize with my doctor. I don't pay to shake my doctor's hand. I don't pay to drive to the third floor or the fifth floor. I pay to get care. So when I'm the patient who needs care, I want my payer to work with my health system and my physicians to make sure it's reimbursing them and using the money I gave them to pay for the care I get. There is no reason to not let me get the care I want in the manner I want in the most convenient way as long as it's quality care. So the paradox I see with digital health and with telemedicine is that we're holding it different and saying I won't pay by telemedicine but I will pay in person is really the same thing as saying, I'll pay if it's delivered on the third floor, but not if it's the fifth floor. It's just an arbitrary thing. If the care is just as good on the third floor as it is on the fifth floor, as it is via telemedicine, I should get compensated for the care I'm delivering and I should have the care I'm receiving paid for by the person I trust to pay for it. And do you see that sort of shift happening or is that gonna take some policy changes, perhaps some government action? That's a really, really difficult question. And I think you asked the first question saying, do incentives need to change? And the problem fundamentally is with incentives, because I, as a physician, only make money if I take care of patients. I, as a health system, get money if I take care of patients. And my incentive, therefore, is to take care of more patients. And that's the way we do well. But as a payer, my legal responsibility is actually not to take care of patients. My legal responsibility is, drum roll please, it's actually to the shareholders. And so if I'm a payer and I have a fundamental choice, patient Mrs. Jones is gonna go see the doctor and I have a choice to pay for telemedicine or not pay for telemedicine, my responsibility legally is to not pay for it as long as I could not pay for it 
as long as they're getting good enough care, right? Because I'm supposed to make a profit. The commercial payers are for-profit companies. So what has happened is they all know that at the end of the day, they're going to pay for it. But every month or every year or every two years that they could drag it out, the more money they put in shareholders' pockets. And that is what they're legally responsible to do. So I understand when I talk to payers that this is a bit of a problem, but because they have a different incentive. But on the other hand, what they've done now is they've come out of the woods and they deserve credit for coming out of the woods here and paying for telemedicine and jumping to the forefront. But in that, they've created confusion. And the way they've created confusion is they've said, I'll pay for every commercial payer is different, but we'll pay for COVID-related complaints. Well, what if you call me with a fever and it turns out you have otitis media and it's not COVID-related? Should I have seen that patient? Is that not reimbursed? Okay. What if you're paying for both COVID and non-COVID-related complaints, but like several payers in my region, you're only paying till June? Well, that's okay. We get money now and maybe it goes away in June but I have real practical issues that my telemedicine platforms may not be designed to bill and may not be integrated with your system because you weren't paying for it. And now there's development costs involved and there's time and technology costs involved. And maybe by the time I get these things harmonized, you're not paying anymore. So the short-term fixes have created long-term problems and uncertainty. And without knowing where we're going with this, it's a lot harder to optimize the system for the benefit of the patients. So finally, and given all of that, what steps can individual health systems take right now to develop or expand their own telemedicine systems to, to protect staff and patients and limit disease transmission during the pandemic? Well, I think one of the things that the federal government has done that's really nice is they've relaxed the guidelines and OIG has said they won't come after you for some certain things that normally would be requirements. So allowing people to use what I will call non-traditional telemedicine platforms, FaceTime or Skype or things like that, is nice if you have no platform right now. And that's a way for every doctor to see their own patients and get up on it. But again, when is that guideline going to not happen anymore? And how are those physicians that take these temporary measures and provide care for their patients going to transition to something that is a HIPAA secure platform that has an audit trail? So again, a short-term fix doesn't solve the long-term problem, but I think if you have no telemedicine capabilities on day one, then you have to use some of these short-term fixes and just do what you can do easiest, which will depend on the technology available to you and your patients. I mean, FaceTime sounds great and is really easy, but we all have periodic drop calls. And when I look in my region, only 50% of the patients have it, 50% of the doctors have it. You do the math, that means it only works on 25% of connections, so it doesn't solve it. So I think there's a short term, how can I do whatever I could do quickly to take care of my patients? And then anything goes, more or less. And then there's a long term for a place like Jefferson, which is how do we avoid these short-term traps and continue to scale up our program that's been standing for a while, but yet implement it broadly across the whole health system and engage all the providers and patients that weren't using it. And so the second one is a different challenge in health systems that have a program because we don't want to go backwards and end up at the same point as health systems that are just beginning because we grabbed on to the short-term solution. Thank you, Dr. Hollander.